to That's What I Call Jones History. I'm your host, Christina. I am excited for you to join me on our history discovery as we discuss many topics that uh, we can learn about together. We are going to be getting into part one of a multiple part series on Scotland. Part uh is going to be from 12,000 BC to 1306. We will be reading from several sources listed below. And here we go. People first occupied Scotland in the Paleolithic era. Small groups of hunter-gatherers lived off the land, hunting wild animals and foraging for plants. Natural disasters were a serious threat. Around 600 or 6200 BC, a 25 milli high tsunami devastated the coastal communities in the Northern Isles in Eastern Scotland. This time of prehistoric Scotland is chronologically ordered list of important archaeological sites in Scotland and of major events affecting Scotland's human inhabitants and culture during the prehistoric period. The period of prehistory prior to occupation by the genus Homo is part of the geology of Scotland. Prehistory in Scotland ends with the arrival of the Romans in southern Scotland in the first century AD and the beginning of the written records. The archaeological sites and events listed are the earliest examples or among the most notable of their type. No traces have yet been found of either a Neanderthal presence or Homo sapiens during the Pleistocene. That's a new word. Pleistocene. relating to or denoting the first epoch of the quaternary period between the Pelocene and Holocene epochs. Wow, that really broke it down for me. English motherfucker, do you speak it? So I'm guessing this is a geological period of time in which the world was covered in ice is the is the gist of what i got the first indications of humans in scotland occurring only after the ice retreated in the 11th millennium bc since that time the landscape of scotland has been altered dramatically by both human and natural forces initially sea levels were lower than at present due to the large volume of ice that remained this meant that the orkney archipelago and many of the inner Hebridean islands were attached to the mainland as was the present-day island of Great Britain 
to continental Europe. Much of the present-day North Sea was also dry land until 4000 BC. Dodger Bank, for example, was part of a large peninsula connected to the European continent. This would have made travel to Western and Northern Scotland relatively easy for early human settlers. The subsequent isostatic rise of land makes estimating post-glacial coastlines a complex task there are numerous raised beaches around scotland's coastline many of the sites are located in the highlands and islands this may be because of the relatively sparse modern populations and consequent lack of disturbance much of the area also has a thick covering of peat that preserves stone fragments although the associated acidic conditions tend to dissolve organic materials there are also numerous important remains in the Orkney Archipelago. Archipelago. Why did I say Archipelago? <laughs> Where sand and arable land predominate. Local tradition hints at both a fear and a veneration of these ancient structures that may have helped to preserve their integrity. This is why differentiating is complex. The Paleolithic lasted until the retreat of the ice, the Mesolithic until the adoption of farming, and the Neolithic until metalworking commenced. These events may have begun at different times in different parts of the country. A number of these sites span very long periods of time, in particular the distinctions between the Neolithic and the later periods are not clear cut. 400,000 BC. People first started cultivating and claiming ownership of land in Scotland in the Neolithic period. They built permanent shelters, made pottery and stone axes, and created tombs to house the remains of their ancestors. Around 2500 BC, the arrival of metalworking signaled the start of the Bronze Age and a period of technological change. Barrier structures like the one that was uncovered at St. Kilda and ornaments made from exotic materials such as gold, amber, or jet show that people were displaying their wealth and status and that social hierarchies were starting to form. At Braddock Castle, you can learn about this early period of history in a reconstructed roundhouse. Seven, and I totally intend to go there. When I go back for my two-week period to, to England, I'm going up to Braddock Castle. 700 BC, the Iron Age saw people making better tools and weapons. Communities also built defensive forts of timber, earth, and stone to keep enemies at bay. We found evidence of human activity dating back to the Iron Age in the caves beneath Colzine Castle. In the Iron Age, the native population traded and adopted new technologies. The Celtic knotwork and the decoration, which is still admired today, began in this period. The Celts also loved to decorate metalwork and wore colorful clothes and jewelry. The Romans called the tribes of the north Caledoni and named their land Caledonia. 
The Picts, known as the Painted People, were one of the Celtic tribes who inhabited Scotland. Named by the Romans, historians think they painted or tattooed their bodies and carved standing stones, some of which can still be seen today. The Picts left little evidence behind, but many towns in Scotland still have Pictish names, such as Pitten Wim and Pitlochry to name but two the tribes in caledonia resisted roman invasion and the romans tried a number of tactics to keep the peace in the north they built two walls the antonine wall which stretched from forth to the clyde and the better known adrian's wall both massive undertakings and designed to keep the fierce tribes of caledonia out of roman britain Get away from me! I'll fight you. I'll fight you. From about 400 CE, there was a long period for which written evidence is scanty. Four peoples, the Picts, the Scots, the Britons, and the Angles, were eventually to merge and thus form the Kingdom of Scots. The Picts, who we've heard a lot about, occupied Scotland north of the Forth, their identity has been much debated, but they possessed a distinctive culture seen particularly in their carved symbol stones. Their original language, presumably non-Indo-European, has disappeared. Some Picts probably spoke a Bithronic Celtic language. Pictish unity may have been impaired by their apparent tradition of matrilineal succession to the throne the scots from Dalreda in northern ireland colonized the Argyll argyle area probably in the late 5th century their continuing connection with ireland was a source of strength to them and scottish and irish gaelic uh i don't think i can pronounce that but i'll try gold Celtic languages did not become distinct from each other until the late Middle Ages. Scottish Daurida or Riata soon extended its cultural as well as its military sway east and south. Though one of its greatest kings, Aidan, was defeated by the Angles in 603 at Degsastan near the later Scottish border. The Britons speaking a Brythronic Celtic language, colonized Scotland from farther south, probably from the first century BCE onward. They lost control of southeastern Scotland to the Angles in the early 7th century CE. The British heroic poem Goddodden described a stage in this process. The British Kingdom of Strathclyde in southwestern Scotland remained with its capital at Dumbarton. The Angles were Teutonic-speaking invaders from across the North Sea. Settling from the 5th century, they had by the early 7th century created the Kingdom of Northumbria. This, from Viking lore, may sound familiar. Northumbria 
Austria stretches from Hamburg to the 4th. A decisive check to their northward advance was administered in 685 by the Picts at the Battle of Neshtansmere in Angus. Viking raids on the coast of Britain began at the end of the 8th century. Lindisfarne and Iona pillaged in the 790s. By the mid 9th century, Norse settlement of the Western and Northern Isles and of Caithness and Sutherland had begun probably largely because of overpopulation on the west coast of Norway. During the 10th century, Orkney and Shetland were ruled by Norse earls nominally subject to Norway. In 1098, Magnus III, or Magnus Barefoot, king of Norway, successfully asserted his authority in the northern and western isles and made an agreement with the king of Scots on their respective spheres of influence. Amid 12th century Earl of Orkney, Ragnvald built the great cathedral at Kirkwall in honor of his martyred uncle, St. Magnus. The Norse legacy to Scotland was long lasting, but in the mid 12th century, there was a rising against the North in the West under a native leader, Somerled, who drove them from the greater part of mainland Argyle. Ladies and gentlemen, a Norwegian expedition of 1263 under King Haken IV failed to maintain the Norse presence in the Hebrides, uh, and three years later they were ceded to Scotland by the Treaty of Perth. In 1468, 69 of the Northern Isles of Orkney and Shetland were pawned to Scotland on to Scotland as part of a marriage settlement with the crown of Denmark, Norway. Nonetheless, the Scandinavian language, the Norn, was spoken in these Viking possessions, and some Norse linguistic influence still remains discernible in Shetland. Although bagpipes have ancient origins elsewhere and are found throughout the world, they are one of the most recognized symbols of Scottish culture. By the 16th century, various clans had established hereditary pipers and later the instrument was used in wartime to inflame the passions of soldiers in battle. The form of the kilt, Scotland's national costume, and looking hella great on James McAvoy. I mean, them calves, man, those calves. The modern kilt with its tartan or tartan, why do I always say tartan? Tartan pattern became common in the 18th century and served an important role in the formation of a Scottish national identity. Knits from Fair Isle with their distinctive designs woven from the fine wool of Shetland sheep are also world famous. One traditional local custom is Kale, which also means visit not also but does mean visit a social occasion that includes music and storytelling once common throughout the country the Kaylee is now a largely rural institution sports such as tossing the caber a heavy pole and the hammer throw are integral to the highland games a spectacle that originated in the 19th century the games are accompanied by 
pipe bands and usually solo performances of Highland dancers. Other traditions include Burns suppers, honoring poet Robert Burns, which often feature haggis, also known as disgusting. I'm a thought. I'll own it. I'm not ashamed. Haggis is a delicacy. Oh, that's nasty. Oh, they're so nasty. Haggis is a delicacy traditionally consisting of offal and suet boiled with oatmeal in a sheep's stomach. And a cockaliki, which is a chicken stewed with leeks. Many Scots consider these games and traditions to be a self-conscious display of legendary characteristics that have little to do with ordinary Scottish life. The show put on like national costumes to gratify the expectations of tourists and encouraged by the royal family's annual appearance at Braemar gathering near Balmoral, Balmoral Castle. Scottish country dancing, however, is a pastime whose popularity has spread far beyond Scotland. Food and drink have played a central role in Scotland's heritage. In addition to haggis, Scotland is known for its Angus beef, porridge, stovies, a potato-rich stew, shortbreads, scones, cheese, Bishop Kingdom, Kabic, Lawnick, and blue to name a few toffee and game dishes such as salmon venison and grouse the term whiskey is derived from the gaelic oh shit here we go again ishkaba we did it we did it we did it meaning water of life historical references to whiskey date from the late 15th century though its popularity in the country probably goes back even further Indeed, throughout Scotland, private distilleries proliferated in the 17th century, which led to the Scottish Parliament to impose a tax on whiskey production in 1644. That's a story for another time. Today, whiskey is among the country's leading exports. In the earlier period, the Scots kept slaves, and many of these were foreigners, English or Scandinavian, captured during warfare. Large-scale Scottish slave raids are particularly well-documented in the 11th century. Let's talk about one of the major events here in this time period, which is the First War of Scottish Independence. In 1296, Edward I invaded Scotland, massacring townspeople of Berwick and stripping the Scottish King John Balliol of his arms of Scotland. In response, in 1297, the Scottish knight William Wallace and his squire Andrew Murray raised an army of Scots. And on 11th of September of 1297, inflicted a decisive defeat over the English at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. This was popularized in the incredibly fictional Braveheart. We can discuss William Wallace in a different video when we start uh, breaking down great Scottish leaders or notable Scottish leaders. It's a little bit fucked up that a king would be 
declared king and he just decides i'm also the king of scotland even though it already has a king and i'm just gonna march my troops over there and make it law and then imagine that embarrassment on the ride back so you get nothing you lose good day sir but it would not be the first or the last time that england has decided that it is scotland's overlord in 1306 robert the bruce was crowned king of scotland war between the english and the scots raged until 1314 when robert the bruce's army defeated edward ii at the battle of bannockburn a legend was born his name was robert the bruce and he is celebrated to this day scottish independence was declared six years later with the declaration of arbroath on april 6 of 1320 addressed to pope john the 11th no 12th the letter asked him to recognize scotland as an independent country and robert the bruce as its lawful king putting the foot down on this shit so that you understand i'm the man up in this piece You'll never see the light of day. Who the fuck you think you fucking with? I'm the police. I run shit here. You just live here. Yeah, that's right. You better walk away. Go and walk away because I'm going to burn this motherfucker down. King Kong ain't got shit on me. Robert the first son, David the second, has perhaps received unfair treatment from historians contrasting him and his illustrious father, which tends to happen for sons that live in the shadow of really great men unless you're alexander the great it's like i'll show you a great just over five years of age at his accession he was soon confronted with a renewal of anglo-scottish war exacerbated by the ambitions of those scots who had been deprived of their property by robert the first or otherwise disaffected sidebar i also thought that was rather sad though for alexander because for all that he conquered he was not happy that was not a happy person nobody drinks that fucking much and is i mean he was an alcoholic and an and an abusive alcoholic at that not even a happy drunk like i killed my friend i was so fucked up drunk and and uh he died fairly young so those daddy issues (laughs) even if you manage to uh to outshine their their uh, legend still seems to leave scars in the 1330s edward balliol pursuing the claim to the throne of his father john overran southern scotland in return for english help he gave england southern lands and strong points not recaptured fully by the scots for a century after the scottish defeat at halladen hill near berwick in 1333 david was forced to flee to france in the following year as you should you traitorous bitch go suck a dick suck a dick suck a motherfucking dick suck a dick suck a huge or small that's my four percent scottish speaking i'm pretty sure at the time you had your feelings because if that was your father it seems as if he did have a, a actual legitimate claim to the throne versus some people like third cousin down the line like what 
and that is where we are going to pause it today we will be back for part two of course uh with a more in detail look at black culture or blacks in in scotland at this time because we don't really show up until maybe the 14th 15th century uh when scotland got a little bit more heavily involved in the slave trade not just between those two that i mentioned previously there are also some tales of triumph and success so not just uh the bad the good but everything in between if you want to send feedback for our next episode blackercouch at gmail.com or you can leave a comment below on this podcast my social media will be below as well remember to like share and subscribe until next time peace hair grease and blacker magic